Well, I'm sure that at some point in your schooling, you had to read a required book that was not your favorite, uh, some classic that you just couldn't get into. For me, it was a book called The Scarlet Letter by, yeah, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. I, I see by the laughter some of you have read it. Uh, I, I struggled with this book. I know that there are probably a few of you in the room that you loved this book, and that's okay. We all have opinions. Some are better than others, right? I really, really struggled. It, it, it felt boring to me from page one. It felt boring to me uh, on page 100 or whenever the book finished. It's a short book that feels exceedingly long. Uh, I struggled a lot. In fact, uh, as an adult, I've had a couple of fans of the book come back to me and say, you know, now that you're grown up, you should read it again uh, because you might find that you enjoy it more as a grown-up. And my response is always, I, I don't want to, right? One of the advantages of being a grown-up is I don't have to read things that I hate, right? I don't want to read it as a grown-up. Now, I share that because my guess is that as I'm standing up here this morning, some of you see the screen and you see the word Leviticus and you feel the same way. And I'm aware Leviticus is not the first book that most of us are going to go to in our quiet time. I'm aware that for some of you, Leviticus is where your read the Bible in a year plan died a harsh death somewhere around early February, right? You began Genesis, Exodus, great. Somebody told me this morning, I know Genesis and Exodus so well. And then I get to Leviticus and I always fizzle out, right? That may be you. Uh, to top it off, you look at the screen and it, it's about holiness, another topic that we don't talk about a lot, a topic that we are not as familiar with today, and one that we might even have negative feelings associated with, right? We think a lot about the love of God, we think about the grace of God, the kindness of God, maybe even the power of God, but we don't talk a lot anymore about the holiness of God. You may have noticed that the, the song we sang this morning about the holiness of God is 200 years old. There aren't a whole lot of modern praise choruses about the holiness of God because it's a tough concept for us, one we don't understand. And in fact, a few weeks ago, I asked some of my friends on Facebook to tell me, what do you think of when you hear the word holiness? Right, and the two, the two answers that were the most common, one was they think of people who are holier than thou, right? A person who says, I am holy, is a person who says, uh, look, I've got a lot of legalistic rules for my life, right? I, I, I never drink, I don't smoke, I don't dance, whatever it may be. They've got all of these rules and they use those rules to leverage themselves as somebody who is more righteous, holier than thou better than you. The other response that came up was, holiness sounds like something impossible. Holiness sounds to me like something that God is, but not that I could ever be, right? So we think about holiness and we have uh, misunderstandings about it, certainly, but also we might have negative feelings about it. But as we look through the scripture, and here's really going to be our critical point this morning, as you look through the scripture, you cannot escape that the holiness of God and the call on our lives to be holy, it's one of the most important aspects of the story of God in Scripture. As you read throughout 
the scripture, you're going to see the words for holy and holiness over and over and over again. In fact, you're going to see God's holiness talked about more often than God's love, more often than God's grace, even more often than God's power. In the Old Testament alone, the words for holy and holiness are used over 600 times. It's one of the most commonly used words in the Old Testament. But it's not just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the word holy and holiness, these words are used over 200 times in the New Testament. The book we're looking at this morning, the book of Leviticus, the words for holy and holiness are used over 100 times in the book of Leviticus alone, right? So it's deeply important to the flow of the Scripture. And it's deeply important to who God is. And who he's calling us to be. And I'm going to say something this morning that might surprise you or shock you. It might not. Here is the impression we get as we read the Bible. And it is this. You cannot really say, I want to know God and be like Jesus. Without understanding or at least trying to pursue holiness. Okay, now let let me be clear about that. I'm not saying you can't have eternal life. Right? Everybody who believes in Jesus for eternal life has eternal life as a free gift. But if you're a person in the room this morning that you say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to reflect Jesus. I want to proclaim Jesus. I want to know God in a deep way. The scripture would tell us you cannot approach that task well unless you understand and pursue holiness because it's so central to who God is. And I don't think there's any better book of the Scripture for us to talk about the concept of holiness than the book of Leviticus. Because at the center of what the book of Leviticus is about is the concept of holiness. And here's really where I want to take us this morning. By the end, I want us to understand what holiness is, to say I want to pursue holiness because of what the Scripture tells me about it. But then also I want us to understand what do we do with the reality that we fail a lot when it comes to holiness? What do we do with the reality that we may say, I want to be holy, I understand what the scripture says about holiness, but I try it and I fail. What do we do with that, with that failure? That's where we're going to head this morning. But before we go there, let me just give a 30,000 foot overview of where we are in the context of the story of Israel as we open up the book of Leviticus. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that Blake talked about the story of the golden calf, Exodus 32 to 34. And you'll remember God had been preparing the Israelites as they left the land of Egypt. He'd been preparing them to be a kingdom of priests. That is, God says, I want you to be a people who mediate my blessings to the rest of the nations. I want you to act like me. I want you to think like me. I want you to become like me, right? You can't fully become like God, but God is saying, I want you to represent me amongst all the nations. So he tells them about the tabernacle and how they're going to worship him in the tabernacle. Right in the middle of that, you remember, as Moses is receiving the law and the instructions about the tabernacle, the people get impatient and they make this golden calf. When Moses finds out about it, God tells him and Moses finds out about it. Remember, there's judgment on the nation. People die. People are disciplined and judged. 
There's this rift between God and the people, but God in his grace, and this is what we see in the rest of the book of Exodus, God restores the covenant. He gives Moses new tablets with the law, and then the remainder of the book of Exodus is the building of the tabernacle itself. Okay, and so this is the place where God is going to be worshipped, is in this tabernacle. And then we move into the book of Leviticus. And what you have essentially in the book of Leviticus is God says, as you live amongst the nations who don't know me, and you have a tabernacle where the presence of God resides, this is how I want you to worship, and this is who I want you to be. This is what I want you to live like. This is how I want you to worship. And again, the central theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. But here's just kind of an outline of the book really quickly. Begins with these regulations for offerings in the tabernacle. If you're going to make offerings and sacrifices to God, how do you do it? What do they look like? If someone sins, what kind of offering do you bring? If you want to make what's called a peace offering, a relational offering where you rejoice at God's presence, this is how you do it. Then there are regulations for the priests because the priests were ministering in the presence of God. They had certain things they were supposed to wear. There were only certain people they were allowed to marry. Priests were not allowed also, for example, to go to a funeral because that contact with a dead person could defile them as they ministered in the presence of God. So unless it was a close relative, priests had to stay away from things like funerals and uncleanliness, right? And then you have ritual purity, rules about what they can eat, what they can't eat. Then you have the day of atonement, the highest holy day in the nation of Israel, where the high priest once a year would go into the holy of holies and make an offering And sprinkle the blood over the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the sins of the people where they had failed in holiness over the course of the previous year. And then we hit the section we're in right now, which is called, a lot of people call it the Holiness Code. And it's called the Holiness Code because a few times throughout this section, God says, I want you to be holy For I am holy. It's repeated several times in the book of Leviticus. And what this section is, is it's kind of like rules for daily life. Here's how you're going to worship. Here's how you're going to live. Here's how you're going to treat one another. Here is uh, how sexual behavior ought to be approached and not approached in the nation of Israel, right? So you've got this list of rules for the people that center on the theme of holiness. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning as we talk about holiness. And as God gives these people what look to us like just a list of rules, I want to pull out this theme of holiness so we can see what it is, why it matters, how we do it, and then what do we do if we fail. So let me begin with this question then, first of all, of what it is. What is holiness? Right? What is holiness? I'm going to give you a definition, then I'm going to give you a few illustrations. Okay, here's the definition. To be holy is to be uncommon or other or set apart for some special purpose, right? So when we talk about the holiness of God, what we mean is God is separate from us. God is different from us. He's more powerful. He's more pure. He is stronger. He is greater. In every way, God is set apart from us. When we talk about our holiness, the idea is I am set apart from sin. I am set apart from those things that would defile me. And I'm set aside for the purposes of God, right? So I'm not to be used for a common purpose. The Old Testament uses the word profane often to mean something that is common, something that is just the usual usage. Instead, God and his people are 
special, set apart, uncommon. Let me give you a, a modern illustration of holiness. Several years ago, I walked into our kitchen, and this is what I found sitting on the counter. Uh, this is a box of, or a Tupperware full of cookies that my daughter had made. And you can see she placed a note on it. It says, for school, do not eat daddy. Right? Now, I saw this, and I, I first was a little offended, because it's not just like we're the only two people in the house. There are five people who live there who could have eaten these cookies, but apparently, in her mind, I was the most likely to open up this Tupperware and eat them all before they made it to her school. So she wrote a note, and here's what the note says. Daddy, these are what? They're holy cookies. Okay? That's what they are. They're set apart from you, Daddy. Don't profane them. They are set aside for, for what? For my classmates. They're for special people apart from you. So don't eat them. See that? That's holiness. That's the idea. They're reserved. They're set aside. They're uncommon. First time in the Bible that we see the word holy, you get that idea very clearly. As God is making all of the world, Genesis chapter 2, it says God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. What is it saying? God made the seventh day holy. The Sabbath is holy. Why is the Sabbath holy? Well, because God rested, right? So the Sabbath is holy because it's not like all of the other six days. And so the nation of Israel, on all the other six days, you could do all of the normal things. You would work your field. You would, you would fix the fence, do whatever it was that you needed to do to keep your farm going on the other six days. But on the seventh day, it was set apart. What was it set apart for? Well, it was set apart from these common activities. It was set apart for both rest and worshiping God. That's the idea of holy. It's not like the other days. The next time you see the word holy is in the book of Exodus, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Remember, and Moses turns aside, and this bush is burning without being consumed. And God says to Moses, do not approach any closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Why does he take his sandals off? Because his sandals were carrying in dirt and all sorts of particles from elsewhere, from common territory where he had been walking. And so God says, take off your sandals because where you're standing is set aside for the presence of God. Moses, you can only come so close to the burning bush. Why? Because the burning bush is also holy. In the burning bush, at least at this moment, resides the presence of God. And God is other than you. God is greater than you. That's the idea of holiness. So that all throughout the scripture, God, of course, is the one who's described as holy most often. And quite often when God describes himself as holy or others describe God as holy, it's placed in the context of God being the only God, right? So he will say, I am the Lord your God and I am holy. And the idea is I'm greater than the gods of the Egyptians and I'm greater than humanity. I am set apart and above. Why? Why is he greater than the gods of the Egyptians? Because he's real and he's powerful, 
He had just demonstrated to them how much greater than the gods of the Egyptians he was. That was part of what the ten plagues are all about as he delivers the people from Egypt. And so holiness is this idea of otherness, uncommonness, set-apartness. And God will tell the nation of Israel, I want you to be holy. And why are we called to be holy? God says, because God is holy. I want you to be holy because I am holy. I want you to be like me. Why? Because I want all the nations around Israel to see who I am. You don't do things, he will say, like the Egyptians or like the Canaanites. In every area of your life, and we'll see this in a minute, you're called to be holy. You're called to be different. You're called to be set aside from sin, set aside from the way they do things, and set apart toward the way that I do things. Leviticus chapter 11, he says, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, and you are to be holy because I am holy. As I said a few minutes ago, the holiness of God is one of his defining attributes in Scripture. It's clearly one of the most important concepts about God that we could learn. Right? And one of the ways that I know that is because as you read throughout the Scripture, you come across scenes like this one as the prophet Isaiah finds himself in a vision in the throne room of God in heaven. Here's what Isaiah sees. Seraphs stood over him. Seraphs were a type of angel. The word literally means the burning ones or the bright ones. Seraphs stood over him. Each one had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And they used the remaining two to fly. They called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord who commands armies. His majestic splendor fills the entire earth. The Apostle John, at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, sees the same thing. When he has a vision of God's throne room, he says each one of the four living creatures had six wings and was full of eyes all around and inside. Now listen to this. They never rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the all-powerful or the almighty, as we sang earlier, who was and who is and who is still to come. Now to give you an idea of what's going on, in the Hebrew language, if you want to emphasize something, They didn't have a way to put italics or bold it or whatever it may be, put it in all caps. Instead, what they would do is if you wanted to emphasize something, you would repeat it. So if I say, you are nice, nice, I mean, you're really, really nice, right? If you say to your wife, you are beautiful, beautiful, you are really beautiful. If you really want to take it up a notch, you say, you are beautiful, 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 You say it over and over. So they say, God is holy, holy, holy. Now now get this part. They never stop saying it. Okay, sometimes you complain. I know about the repetition of modern praise choruses. This one would drive you nuts. I thought about asking Trey this morning to sing the chorus of holy, holy, holy 17,000 times just to get the idea. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And then they start over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And they say it over and over and over again and they never stop ever 
for eternity. That ought to give us an idea of the holiness of God and how central it is to His character. He has a team of angels who do nothing but fly around proclaiming His holiness. And so God says to the nation of Israel and ultimately to us, because this is so central to who I am, you are to be holy because I am holy. I want you to be holy because you are called to reflect me and then to proclaim me to the nations around you who don't know me. That's the idea. You are in my family, nation of Israel. You are a part of my family, people of God. So I've set you aside to be holy. I was remembering a couple of weeks ago as I thought about this concept. When I was young, when I was seven or eight years old, we had a cat who in a very short period of time had a number of litters of kittens. Right? And I remember with one litter, one day I came into the garage and there were about five kittens in this litter. And the scene that I saw, I've never forgotten. Because here was the mom cat, Butterball was her name. And uh, Butterball had gone and found a bird and caught the bird and brought it into the garage and set it on the garage floor. I don't remember whether the bird was already deceased or merely on its way to being deceased. But the, the bird was sitting there on the garage floor. And as I walked in, here was Butterball and the other kittens were in a circle around the bird. And what I saw was Butterball would, would lunge forward and kind of pounce at that bird and then back up. And then the kitten on her left lunged forward and pounced at that bird and then backed up. And then the next one did it and backed up, right? All around the circle. And I remember thinking, this is really, really brutal, but also really cute at the same time. (laughs) Now, why did she do that? Because she was teaching them what? Because I am a hunter, you will be a hunter, it's in my blood. The truth is we fed Butterball from a can. She didn't actually need to go and hunt for her living. But she says, this is part of the character of who I am. We are cats, therefore we hunt. I'm a hunter, you will be a hunter. One day if you have kittens, they will be hunters. It is who you're made to be because it's who I am. God says to the people of Israel, you're to be holy because I am holy in reflection of the God who made you. It's meant to be part of who you are. As a parent, you may have uh, experienced this same concept in your own home. right? Maybe your own child at some point uh, either says something dishonest to you or is sassy to you. And you may say something like this. In our family, we don't do that. right? In our family, we tell the truth. Mortons tell the truth. Mortons are respectful to other people. Right? If you're a parent, you've almost certainly said something like this. It may be that in all of your friends' families, it's okay to talk like that. But not in this family. Because we're meant to be different. We're Mortons. That's what God says. I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart. Apart from sin. Apart from idolatry. Why? Because I am holy. You're mine. And I want you to reflect me to all of the nations around so they can know who God is, who the true God is. And so as we move through Leviticus then, 
We see how God will begin to explain to them not only what holiness is and why they are to be holy, but then he's going to say, how do we pursue holiness? What does it look like? Now, as we've walked through the Pentateuch, one thing that we've tried to keep in mind is that we're looking at a particular time in history with a particular people. The Israelites, of course, are an ethnic nation under God's leadership designed to inherit a particular land in the promised land, right? So a lot of what we see in the Pentateuch in terms of the laws, they apply directly to Israel at this period in history. What we're going to see as we move into the New Testament is that a lot of these laws no longer apply uh, to us because the church is now composed of Jews and Gentiles together who know Jesus. And because Jesus died, Paul will say, to set us free from the demands of the law. We'll get more into that in a bit. But the point I want to make as we look a little bit through Leviticus is this, that we're going to see, God is going to walk them through, here's what holiness looks like for you. You can never be just like God in your holiness. God will always be holier than you are. But for a person to be holy, this is what it looks like. And fundamentally, what it looks like is holiness will include every area of your life. From the big to the small. Let me show you. So he starts out chapter 17 and he says, I want you to be holy in the way you worship me. So chapter 17 begins by saying this. You are only allowed to offer sacrifices to God at the place that God appoints. Initially that's going to be the tabernacle. In the long run that will be in the temple in Jerusalem. But the idea is this. God's going to say there's a right way to worship me and there's a wrong way to worship me. And in fact for the nation of Israel there's a right place and a wrong place. Why is that? It's not that they couldn't sing a song to God if they were out in the wilderness or whatever. It's not that they couldn't praise God. But sacrifice was intended to be done in the place God designated. And here is why. Because there would be people living way in the north part of Israel, for example, a long ways away from Jerusalem and from the temple. And this, in fact, happened in the nation of Israel. They would go, you know what? It's too much trouble for us to travel all the way to Jerusalem for the Passover or whatever it may be. So they would say, look, we're going to make our own little altar right where we live, and we will worship God here. But what that always led to was not only them saying we will worship God where we want, It ended with them saying, we will worship God how we want. We will sacrifice what we want. They created idols that to them would represent the God they wanted to serve. And so by moving the place, they diminished their accountability in worship. And they ended up going into idolatry. God will give regulations in chapters 21 and 22 for the priests themselves what they are to wear, how they're to approach worship, how they're to approach their lives. In fact, the book of Leviticus comes from the priestly tribe of Levi because so, many of what, so much of what we see in Leviticus is about the priests because they are called, as they minister near the presence of God himself, to be holy. And so God says, your worship, the way that you worship, it makes a difference. I want you to worship in the way that I have called you to worship. What you say, what you offer, how you think in worship, and where you worship. He says, I want you to pursue holiness with your body. With your body. Leviticus chapter 18 contains a number of regulations surrounding sexual holiness, sexual 
purity, right? And God places guidelines around when sexual behavior is appropriate and when it is inappropriate. So as you read Leviticus 18, there are a lot of commandments about things like adultery, incest, homosexuality, and a lot of other things, right? And the idea is this, that even in your sexual relationships, you are called to reflect the love and the kindness and the character of God. And one thing that God is, is he is faithful and he is loyal. And so God has designed marriage to reflect his faithfulness, reflect his purity, reflect his loyalty. Chapters 11 through 15. Uh, Chapter 11 is often where a lot of people kind of burn out on the book of Leviticus because you've got the list of clean and unclean animals, right? You're allowed to eat certain things, not eat certain things. And the idea is even in what you eat and even in how you consume your food, you're meant to be set apart from the nations. People have argued a lot about why certain animals and not others. Why can't they eat pigs, but they can eat cows, right? They can't eat rabbits. There's a long list of uh, birds they're allowed to eat and birds they're not allowed to eat. Nobody really knows because the text does not tell us why these animals and not these animals, except to say, I think that every time they sat down to a meal, God was reminding them, you're called to be holy. You're called to be different set apart from the nations around you with the way you treat your body, with what you eat, with what you drink. You're called to be holy. So he would say in Leviticus 18, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes, and walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. He says, I don't want you to treat your bodies the way they do. See, the, the, the religions of Canaan and Egypt, they were filled with violence and sexual immorality. The way that they approached worship was intermingled with impurity. And so God says, in your worship, I want you to be pure, and in your bodies, I want you to be pure. He's going to go on through Leviticus and say, I want you to pursue holiness with your relationships. I love chapter 19. You'll recognize Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, because Jesus quotes it later on. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So think about this. In the context of holiness, God says, it's not just your worship, right? It's not just your bodies. It's actually how you treat other people as well that reflects the holiness of God. And and later, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law? You remember the first one he says is you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he says this, the second one is like it. The second one's the same type of command because it flows from the first one. And it is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Because the love of God actually reflects the holiness of God. And what what I mean by that is no one's more loving than God. No one's kinder than God. No one is more generous than God. God's love and kindness and generosity exceed that of all the gods of the nations and they exceed that of all the people in the universe. So he says this, if you're going to be holy, it also reflects how you treat other people. So in, in Leviticus 19, there are laws about how you treat those, for example, who work for you who work your land, you're supposed to pay them fairly. You're supposed to pay them on time. 
There are laws about how to treat the elderly among you. It says you're supposed to rise up in the presence of those who are elderly. There are laws about how to treat the disabled, not to place an obstacle in their path, but to care for them. There are laws about how to treat the poor among you and be generous. There are laws about how to treat the stranger and the alien who comes in to live among you, to treat them just like you would treat your brothers, right? And you, you may remember in the New Testament, there was a very smart guy who came up to Jesus, and when Jesus uh, talks about loving your neighbor, the guy goes, aha, but who is my neighbor, right? To try to find a loophole. And Jesus' response is the parable of the good Samaritan, which essentially says whether somebody is like you or not, whether you like someone or not. You are called to love them as you love yourself. Jesus' response fundamentally to this guy is, I'm not sure you read the chapter in which love your neighbor as yourself is actually placed. Because it's all-encompassing in terms of your relational responsibilities. Because that reflects the holiness, the set-apartness, the otherness of God. So with our worship, with our bodies, with our relationships, with our time. I'm not going to go into detail on in this because uh, there's an upcoming sermon about the feasts and festivals of Israel. But the idea is God had even created a timeline for the people. A weekly timeline, of course. The Sabbath is to be set apart. We talked about that earlier. But there's a yearly timeline, right? There are several feasts and festivals. Three uh, high holy ones where they were supposed to travel to Jerusalem. And then seven total where they would pause and they would worship God and they would cease from labor. And so you have these festivals to remind them year by year by year that even their time belongs to God. And then every seven years there was a year of jubilee where the land that they owned would revert back to its ancestral ownership. And then every uh, 49 years, actually, I'm sorry, every seven years there was a sabbatical year where they would let the land rest. And then every 49 years you would have a year of jubilee where the land would go back to its original ownership. And the idea is year by year, decade by decade, even every 50 years, there's this timeline God has set for worship to remind them that every part of your life is set apart for God. And then, of course, with their money and with their possessions. Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25 deals with generosity to the poor, but it also deals with this issue of allowing the land to go back to its original ownership in the year of Jubilee. And the idea behind that is the land belongs to God. You are holy and the land is holy. Right, So what would happen often in the nation of Israel is somebody uh, in a situation where they were facing debt or poverty, one way they could get out of that is they would either sell themselves into indentured servitude or they could lease their ancestral land to somebody who had more money that would pay them for the land. Or they might sell it. But, but there was always a catch in the nation of Israel. It is if, if you sell the land away to, to get rid of your debt, You need to know, if you're the buyer, that after 49 years, it's going to go back to that person's descendants. And the idea is this, that nobody would make a decision that would permanently place their grandkids or great-grandkids in poverty for generation after generation, at least not in the nation of Israel. Because God says, these are my people, and this land doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And so again, the point I want to make as you read through these laws in the book of Leviticus is simply this. Holiness included every aspect of life. Every aspect of life. So what does that mean? There was no such thing as a private sin. 
But at the same time, holiness was not only about personal purity either. It it covered every aspect of their life. So one of the funny laws that that we run into that that people wonder about in Leviticus chapter 19, there's this law about clothing. It says you're not supposed to use mixed seed in the fields. You're also not supposed to wear clothing made of two different kinds of thread. What that means this morning is almost everybody in this room is in sin. Okay, we could check the tags on our shirts. We, we're wearing mixed thread clothing. Now, we're going to talk about why we don't do that specifically anymore. But why was it there in the first place? Well, here's why. Because the pagan nations around Israel, they believed in magic, right? So as they sowed their fields, they believed if they mixed different kinds of seeds together, there were male seeds and there were female seeds, and they would combine, and magically, the gods would allow the crops to grow. So God says, I don't want you to do that kind of nonsense because that's not who I am. They would wear clothing of mixed threads together for the same reason because there was power in these combinations of threads that supposedly would give you favor with the gods to increase your fertility and to allow your crops to grow and your pocketbook to thrive. God says, I don't want you to engage in that kind of nonsense because you are called to be holy. And the idea is every aspect of your life falls under the grid of holiness 24-7, public and private. So again, that means there's no such thing in the, the understanding of Leviticus as a private sin. In our culture, we often think of certain sins as those that we go, you know, it doesn't really hurt anyone, right? As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else directly, it's okay, right? We especially think that way in terms of sexual holiness, right? So what I do behind closed doors, what I look at on my own time, how I engage sexually in in my relationships, it doesn't really matter as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Right, But the the viewpoint of the scripture is this, that every time we deviate from the holiness of God, we actually are harming the community of those who know God. And the reason is because I'm a member of that community. And so the degree to which I don't reflect the holiness of God means there's one member of the community who cannot contribute to the community's mission as well as they should. To proclaim that God is holy, that God is other, that God is great. Right, we, we often tend to think uh, that way about um, things like what we eat, what we drink. We think that way sometimes even about what we do or don't do with our money. Right, the idea is, no, holiness is for every area of our lives because it affects us and that affects the community. And in fact, biblically, we see that unholiness becomes contagious. It becomes contagious. The attitudes and the mindsets that I bring into the community about things like sexuality, about things like using my money, about things like my job. Those affect everybody else around me. Several weeks ago, uh, very unfortunately, our son happened to get poison ivy. He went uh, to a creek near our house with some friends, and uh, you know how poison ivy works. Of course, you, you touch the plant, maybe you don't notice it at the time, and then you scratch a little bit, and then you put your hand on your face, and then you put your hand on your arm, and before you know it, it's all over your body. You have uncomfortable 
sores all over your body. And of course, if you don't take a shower pretty quickly or try to get that oil off, if you touch somebody else, they will also get it, right? Or if if the oil gets on some substance that they then touch, they will also get it. It can spread throughout the entire household, right? Now, if you wash yourself off, you make yourself clean again, it's not as contagious. Well, it turns out for a while, um, we didn't necessarily realize that last part. We didn't realize that it's not contagious for a really long time. So, uh, Unfortunately, my son's older sisters treated him like a leper for several uh, days up to a week, right? So every time he touched something, they would come behind him and they would wipe it clean. Every time he was in the room, it was like, we need to sanitize. I kept waiting for them to start shouting unclean, unclean, as he would walk through the house, right? But what, were, what was the fear The fear is, look, it's contagious, right? He has it on his body, and right now it just affects his body. But as he comes into contact with other people, it's going to affect all of us. That's the idea of unholiness. That's why things like leprosy would become symbols of unholiness. And and leaven, right? Because you put a little leaven in the bread, it affects all the bread. There is no private sin. But at the same time, holiness also affects our public lives as well. We tend to think of the holiness of God and the love of God as being intention, but they're deeply connected. The way I treat others who are not like me, the way I treat my neighbor, those are part of holiness. And so holiness affects every aspect of life. And we we read these laws about holiness, and I don't know, if, if you're like me, you read them and you go, wow, that's a very high standard. The way that I speak, the way that I think, what I do in my free time, what I do behind closed doors, all of it matters. And so it raises that last question that we're going to look at this morning, which is this, what if we fail? What if we fail? As you look through the scripture and you look at the law especially, you have promises like these. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. In other words, if you do what I tell you, if you pursue holiness, good things will happen to you, Israel. But if you don't, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, and with fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And then the rest of Leviticus 26 goes on with a list of consequences for those who don't pursue holiness. Right? And so we look at this and we go, man, this is so daunting. Like my Facebook friend said, this seems impossible to be holy. And in fact, the nation of Israel, they did fail a lot. And it wasn't just that they accidentally failed, right? Their failures were not like tripping and falling. Their failures were diving headlong into idolatry, into sin, into rebellion against God. I mean, over and over and over again. And so they incurred the curse of the law. They were sent into exile, into the nation of Babylon for 70 years because they didn't let the land enjoy its Sabbath rest, because they stole from their neighbor and the poor, because they were unholy with their bodies and what they did. And so they experience the judgment of God. But then we get to the book of Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah written right in the midst of this this pain and this judgment and this exile. And God says, Jeremiah, here's what I want you to tell the people who have failed so badly. 
and they're living in despair. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah says the day is coming when the failures of the first covenant will be washed clean. And I'll I'll write a new covenant, not like that one, where instead of being subject to the demands of a law that you could not fulfill, the Spirit of God, my Spirit will live within you and empower you to know me and to obey me because you've been forgiven, because you've been washed clean. Now watch this. When we fast forward then to the New Testament, The night Jesus is betrayed, the night before he would be crucified, remember Jesus has the Passover supper with his disciples. And as he raises one of the cups of the Passover Passover supper, he says this, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, under the old covenant, day by day, year after year, you would offer sacrifices and offerings when you failed. But you always had to do it again, and again, and again. There there were never enough bulls and goats and rams to cover their failure. And Jesus at the Last Supper, he says, this cup is the offering for the new covenant to wash you clean once and for all. So that after Jesus' death and resurrection, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal, eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, we needed forgiveness. We needed a once-for-all sacrifice that could wash away our failure. And what's remarkable then is those who have been, who have been washed clean because they trust in the the death and resurrection of Jesus, in His sacrifice on our behalf. The Spirit of God enters into our hearts, Jew and Gentile now. And so Paul will say in Romans 8, the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is, now that the Spirit of God lives in us, we pursue holiness not by means of a law, but instead we pursue holiness through the Spirit that lives in us. And so what you see in the New Testament is a lot of the same commands of the Old Testament are repeated, but not the ones that deal typically with Israel as an ethnic nation. Because now, Jew and Gentile, what do we do in the church? We reflect the holiness of God, the character of God, right? And so commands like do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, these are repeated in the New Testament because they're consistent with the holiness of God. And God says, I still want you to obey me and be holy. But now through the power of the Spirit, because you've been washed clean. This is why Peter says this. He who called you is holy. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, he just quotes Leviticus again. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish 
or spot. Jesus died to make us holy before God. And the Spirit of God lives now in cleansed men and women and calls us to reflect his holiness with how we live. And so Peter says it again, be holy as I am holy, because you were set free. So what does that mean for us then? Let me ask a few quick questions as we wrap up. First one is this. Take a few moments today, this week, and ask, where does your life fall short of God's holiness? Right? And let me be clear. You're, you're going to ask yourself that question and immediately say, everywhere. But what I mean is this. As you think about how God has called you and me to be holy, to reflect his holiness, is there some key area in your life? And I don't know what it is. It might be in the way you speak. It might be in the anger you display toward others. It might be in how you treat your body or what you do with your body or with your mind or with your eyes or behind closed doors. And you say, there's some area in my life that I know deeply falls short of God's holiness, but I also know that Jesus died and rose again to wash me clean. And so now I have the Holy Spirit and I can pray to the Holy Spirit. Say, God, help me. Right, help me today to reflect your holiness. And then you wake up tomorrow. God, help me today to reflect your holiness. Hour by hour, day by day, week by week. So that every time we are facing temptation toward unholiness, we turn to the power of the Spirit of God. So we say, where does my life fall short? And how can I pursue holiness through the power of the Spirit that lives within me? And then thirdly, I would encourage you to begin to try to develop new habits, new ways of thinking, new ways of speaking. So one simple way to do this is whatever area of your life that it is where you say, yeah, I know I've got a major struggle. Whatever it is, every time you feel that urge to behave or think or act in a way that is unholy. And remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is going to say, actually, what we do and what we say, it really begins here and it begins here, right? It begins with what we think. It begins with what we feel in our hearts. And so every time you begin to feel that urge toward unholiness, here, here's one way to begin to develop new patterns and habits, right? So you just pull out a journal, or maybe you do this on your phone if you've got a note app or whatever, and you just, you just make a note, struggling today. Right? And then you pause in that moment and you say, God, help me in this hour. Right? And then maybe 10 minutes later, an hour later, a day later, a week later, you struggle again. You pull it out again. You make a note. And you say, God, help me in this hour to worship you and be holy instead of to turn to unholiness. And over time, through the power of the Spirit, we begin to develop new ways of thinking, new patterns, new habits, so that we can reflect the holiness of God, who calls us to be holy because he is holy. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, we confess, all of us confess, that our thoughts, our words, our deeds are, are not holy as you have called us to be holy. Sometimes, Lord, it, it feels unintentional, and then sometimes we acknowledge it's very intentional. We make conscious decisions to disobey you simply because we think we know better or because we think that change is impossible. Lord, I pray that we would not believe those lies, but that we would trust you. Empower us by your Spirit 
to reflect you more closely today, this week, and in the days and weeks and years to come. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.